This is the Roaring Elephant Podcast, and from a winter wonderland, because it's snowing here, I'm joined by my good co-host, Dave. Hi, Dave. And it is sunny and blue skies here, so either means we're getting snow later, or you're getting the snow today that we had yesterday. Who knows? No, we're getting the nice kind of downpour, which is snow, when you get the melted stuff. Being rain. <laughs> Thankfully not. Thankfully not today. We had rain yesterday and the day before, but uh, it looks dry at the moment. Well, that's, anyway, that's just this delayed weather forecast. <laughs> um, misconceptions and misunderstandings are commonplace. Uh, and in fact, we were thoroughly confused earlier on as we were trying to determine what we were going to talk about today. We didn't land on the topic that we were confused about, but we did land on the apparently four common misunderstandings about en enterprise open source software. Supported by Red Hat. Not sure Indeed. if Red Hat is supporting these misunderstandings, but... Yeah, that seems a little bit strange. <laughs> I just noticed that logo. <laughs> yeah, the, the Enterprises project is a Red Hat-sponsored uh, project. Uh, Venue? No. Website. Website. Yeah. Web source. Uh, and I think this is... I, I don't know how many of these are really misunderstandings or whether this is a bit of a just fluff piece, but I guess we'll find out as we go through. <laughs> well, let's go to number one directly without any other meandering or waiting or talking about stuff around things. And I should shut up now. Which is, <laughs> you should have offload your security responsibilities to others. Well, not sure you can offload security responsibilities to others if you're apparently using this open source enterprise software. Now, I'm all for offloading stuff. I'm lazy. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, this is kind of a bit weird because I'm not sure that I really agree with this misunderstanding. Um, because I think if you, if a vendor has done a good job, then it's not about offloading security responsibilities, but there should be an element of trust that they're keeping their software up to date. They're keeping the dependencies that they're also shipping up to date. And if they're not, I mean, I guess there's a, it's trust, but verify Like you still need to do all of your appropriate security controls, whether that's pen testing or software scanning or whatever else you do in order to satisfy audits or other concerns that you do. But you should be able to trust a vendor of enterprise open source software to keep stuff up to date and patched, shouldn't you? Um, yeah, I think the keyword in the phrase is the responsibilities. Because mm. it's not because you trust somebody to make sure they can bake a decent bread. It's not my responsibility to check for mold. So it's the, as I was flippantly saying, easy approach of just, oh, I'm buying software from XYZ, so I don't have to look at it anymore. I can just uh, point the finger if that's, uh, if something happens, I can tell them, yeah, but they should have done that. 
And this is something that does happen in commercial software because that's the whole indemnification stuff um, uh, we can, we've talked about before in the podcast as well, where you can simply say, yep, uh, something's wrong, but I got a contract with XYZ and all of the litigation, I'll just move on to them and they'll pay the bills. Uh, still a bad thing, I think, because you will still have a pretty big uh, damage on your reputation. Because once you have, mm. I mean, look at Zoom. Uh, Zoom today, I think, is one of the most secure um, video conferencing software, soft video conferencing softwares out there. But they mm. still are seen as the untrusted one because at the start of the pandemic, they had a couple of uh, I'm going to call it mishaps because again, I'm kind of still not sure if it was their fault or just uh, people using it wrongly. But still, things happen. They got the reputation damage happen. And they're still suffering from it, although they're not doing bad at all, which is why I'm not afraid to use them as an example now. Mm. Um, so, yeah. 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 I mean, the, the other thing is this isn't just... Um, this isn't just restricted to enterprise open source software. This is restricted... Oh, sorry. This, this, is, this includes any software that could include open source components, which could be proprietary closed source software like very regularly you'll see your um you know an about page or a licenses page in a application or something like that that you know if you click on and scroll through it all you'll find a whole bunch of you know um, software licenses and stuff that's included in whatever software package you're looking at that information on um, there's a whole bunch of open source components often reused you know, rather than having people implementing their own stuff. And this is this is other stuff that could uh, also be out of date or, um, or you know, vulnerable because it hasn't been updated or hasn't been patched. And there's there's some numbers in this uh, uh, in this article saying that uh, it, an organisation did a audit back in two thousand uh, back in twenty twenty. They audited one thousand audited 1,235 applications and found that 99% of them included open source components, which is what I was just talking about, and that 82% of code bases had components that were more than four years out of date. <laughs> now, again, just because something's out of date, that doesn't necessarily mean that it is vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the things that security scanners uh, often fall foul of um, you know, open source software follows a variety of different um, sort of maintenance cycles. Some software won't get updated for multiple years necessarily. Um, it may get fixes backported into it, um, uh, but you know the the underlying major version change would not, or major version number would not change, and that sort of often trips up. Um, security scanners because they just look at well the version on the website is you know 14 point something the version on this you know, including this software package is 12 point something therefore you're out of date well not necessarily and this this is one of those things that open source um, vendors kind of need to educate time and time again about whether or not just because something has an earlier version number, is it actually vulnerable to things that were patched in later versions? It's just not quite that clear cut. Yeah, but it's also the whole discussion about how you version something, right? There's different approaches of making versions 
move up over time because I typically favor a versioning system where if things get backported, it should make the version bump up to a minor or sub-release or something, what number to differentiate mm. from the unbackport patched yeah. version of it. And when you then say the four years out of date, I would say not having had received any kind of patching in the last four years, mm. considering how fast the world moves, especially in technology, a piece of software that has been on the internet for four years is enterprise software, so it's not a little recipe manual thingy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would be... I mean, when I look at stuff to use for, for the podcast environment, for example, uh, I do look at... Uh, WordPress, we use WordPress for our website. If I look at plugins, I do always look, okay, how long ago has a, uh, has an update been happening here? And if it's more than, to be honest, six months, I yeah. start already thinking, hmm, apparently this is either defunct, deprecated, no longer supported, or not used a lot. And for me, one of the biggest advantages of the open source thing is a lot of people are looking at it because a lot of people are using it. So stuff that doesn't work should be picked up or noticed kind of quickly. All the things I just mentioned before, for those things that are more than six months unmaintained, let's call it that, um, that does make me shy away from those little projects, those little thingies, because for open source, I mean, and, and that's different from commercial, because you kind of started your, your, your paragraph there that you didn't see much of a difference between open source and commercial software there. Commercial software typically has a much longer development cycle where they have a yearly or maybe semi-yearly release cycle because it kind of have that monolithical big bang delivery schedule. Now that is changing, especially if in all of the uh, saucy service kind of uh, products out there where we're moving to more and more, there's more of a movement towards continuous um, delivery, I guess. However, one of the biggest ones out there, Salesforce, which we are also happy to use, um, mm -hmm. typically outdated, not even the previous version, but the version before that, because it's just so complicated to yeah, deploy and upgrade from it. So I guess I'm contradicting myself, and <laughs> open source mm. and enterprise is actually similar. <laughs> well, I, I think the... It's not so much a contradiction as, as I think that it's just a very complex question to try and answer like there's just a lot of very there's a lot of variation there like you know you mentioned you know SaaS oriented stuff you've also got you know a lot of enterprise software is moving to subscription models mm. um and is more, more far more regularly updated yep. so you know think about the you know the adobe clouds uh, creative cloud suite for example is you know continually updates updates kind of pushing down pretty regularly to most of the different components you know point updates performance updates security updates things like that and um, and you know you don't you know you're not downloading giant kind of multi gigabyte sort of patches to the stuff it's just a regular stream of of relatively minor updates um and so I think there's always going to be this struggle of, um, you know, how organizations can incorporate open source software and keep it up to date in some way, shape or form. That's, you know, whether you're consuming open source software as, as part of the, uh, the code that you're bundling with your, your application. And we're seeing more conversations happening now about things like software supply chains where people are 
gaining a far better understanding of how that works. And I think as we start to see that sort of mature, I think some of these challenges will start to be maybe that solved is probably a bit too optimistic, but at least people will start to have better understanding about where they, where they are, where they want to be and the gap that they need to close and how they can close it. Cause at the moment it just, it, from a lot of organizations that I talk to, you know, developer needs function drags in binaries or libraries or whatever and job done. And like that, that can't be the answer kind of, um, going forward with, with software. Like it needs to, we need to have this concept of the, uh, the software supply chain. We need to understand, you know, versions and, and updates and regularly kind of adding those, uh, those changes in, but it means a far more rapid life cycle of release. And a lot of organizations still struggle with that, even if the vendor you know, can happen to move at that sort of pace. Most people consuming the software, yeah. you know, can't or struggle. Yeah, I was going to add that uh, it's actually called uh, having fastest the delivery cycles is a good thing for the up to dateness of the product, security patches, stuff like that. But it is causing problems for the consumers of the of the software because having updates coming in all the time, it makes people delay their upgrades even further because they just can't cope with it and not having the latest greatest functionality in the software version you're using might not be that big of an issue and to be honest if that is an issue then they will likely upgrade because i've been waiting for whatever gizmo is now in there for a long time and i was finally there so they will definitely upgrade but for the other things i mean having release cycles where every week new stuff comes in and i think uh, the uh the, the, the publishing software you just mentioned, I'm not going to mention the name because I don't want to bet, uh, get a bad name of defacing products. But uh, in the industry, that uh, brand is actually well known for having bugs and having mm. an update happen. And now I lost like three months of work because it's corrupted my file. And that's something, I mean, there's a reason that in Linux environments, you have those long-term stable releases. Mm. You basically don't change anything except some backported security fixes up to a point because sometimes the security fix requires some other things to be added as well and then that needs to be mitigated another way so is it a good thing or a bad thing to be this fast i mean is it the, is it the fault of the consumers that they are so slow should is can we point a finger at them or because on the one hand we like this accelerated release cycle but yeah i mean people like the accelerated release cycle people like the Oh, new features and functionality available to me today. Great. Um, but most people just struggle with keeping software up to date. Uh, most enterprises struggle with keeping software up to date. Um, I don't know. I mean, there are some organizations I've worked with that have fully embraced the sort of rolling releases of stuff mm -hmm. and just like as, as soon as stuff comes out like they're literally rolling it in through their ci cd pipeline automated testing and assuming nothing blows up it it, it flows out into the world um but they are relatively few and far between and they're very advanced organizations in the most part and most enterprises just aren't that aren't that well developed they aren't that far down the 
the fully automated rabbit hole. And it's also, it's not just the rolling out, it's the remediation if anything sort of starts to happen. Like you talk about, you know, canary rollouts and things like that, where you start to roll out a portion of uh, a portion of updates to a, a subset of your, you know, your, your production um, users and, you know, you roll it out to maybe your, unfortunately to your lower value or lower tier users first, a handful of them. See How if do you select them up. then? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, you know, and then start rolling it out to the larger scale users. And you need to have a method of a sort of detecting this, uh, this sort of this AB uh, testing type experience. And you also need to be able to, should something be, um, uh, you know, be seen that you need the A, the ability to stop that rollout, B, the ability to roll it all back and, and C, the ability for your users, ideally to have not even noticed unless they hit a particular bug or a particular problem that you did notice during that rollout. Well, maybe enterprise software should take a leaf from a book of another multi-billion dollar industry out there. Mm -hmm. The gaming industry, they do pre-releases. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could look at... Um, it's a voluntary the... beta testing phase. I mean, you don't have to do the selection. The customers select themselves. Yeah, <laughs> so you could... You could you could talk early access. That's true. And in fact, you know, you, you do see this in the software world. Like you can, if you're using Windows, uh, so help you. But uh, unless you're just playing games on it, in which case I understand. Um, but you can, you know, you can sign yourself up for the, uh, what is it, the beta channel, the early adopters the, channel, the rings, or the yeah. insiders channel, or whatever it's called. And like that, it's, it's becoming a, uh, a more sort of, a more regular concept, I think. But how many, again, like how many enterprises do you think probably sign up for those those channels? If they're, they're struggling to adopt updates of software already, they're even less likely to adopt um, early access. Software. It's not enterprise, it's people that sign up for that stuff to do some yeah. internal personal testing, some canary testing, stuff like that. Yeah, I guess uh, we did the episode on the Alpha and Omega platform uh, projects from the OpenSSF a couple of weeks ago, and not that many people listened to the episode. So if you haven't, uh, go back a couple of weeks and listen to it, because that would be one way of maybe solving this problem, because the whole reason that we don't do the quick upgrades is because basically we, we don't trust it. We want to be able mm. to wait, wait until other people have tested it for us or do our own diligence, and that takes time. If we do get a system where we can actually trust that when sub-projects XYZ releases a new version, it has been vetted, checked, uh, vulnerable checked, whatever checked, whatever, whatever, we can just do a continuous git, git clone, put it in our stuff, deploy, done, no problem there. And that might be one of the biggest uh, benefits or reasons for existence of things like the Alpha Mega project, because that's basically what they're trying to get in place long-term view obviously again for more details listen to the uh, episode from a couple of weeks ago where they can actually have that seal of approval you can just download this and run it and you should be 99.9 percent .9%, it's never 100 percent safe that you will be done and as long as the pro that kind of project could give a 
better vetting than you could do yourself, that's enough, right? I mean, if I can do it, or if, I, if I'm a two-man company and I can spend like 20 minutes now to check this thing that I've never seen before, I'll probably miss a lot more than if a project Alpha Omega can do this in a structural, continuous way for the projects themselves. Yeah. And just to clarify, when we say not many people have uh, listened to it, we're talking about YouTube. Um, yeah. we, st <laughs> <laughs> we still have uh, a pretty amazing audience on, uh, for the podcast, the audio-only version. But uh, yeah, this, this, this section is sponsored by people listening to the podcast on YouTube. Please go and watch. See our happy smiling faces, me waving. Um, maybe, maybe I'm not. I'm not entirely convinced. I think there's there's still this trust issue with enterprises and software as a whole. I I don't think most. I think don't think most organisations are ready to adopt with that level of trust. Or, or to put it a slightly different way, it's maybe it's not so much about the trust, but it's about all of the other things that I was talking about earlier. Like the organisations that are doing this already don't necessarily trust um, that this is all going to work seamlessly. But what they do have is all of the um, different elements to be able to remediate this should something go sideways or should something go wrong. But that's a lot of extra work. Um, True, but it's all about due diligence, right? Because you'll never have everything in place to be able to capture every kind of thing that could go wrong. There's always something that you weren't prepared for. The thing you want to make sure is that you did your due diligence, that if it goes wrong, you can at least look yourself in the mirror and talk to your customers and say, we did everything we reasonably could do except write this ourselves and perhaps even, right, even more bugs. So mm. if you can say at a certain point, well, we trusted this seal of approval from recognized institute, whatever it is, and it's a industry known thing, it, everybody trusts them. I mean, why do we trust uh, that ISO certifications mean anything? Because basically yeah. it has a backing, it has ground, it's grounded, people accepted it, it's industry standard. So if the Alpha and Omega project, project from OpenSSF could become something like this, a recognized brand with a reputation, then I would say I have done my due diligence as a small company by making sure that everything I adopt is at least vetted by that in the future, because Alpha Omega isn't there yet. But mm. and that's the thing, right? It's a bit chicken of the egg. We need to wait for that to happen somewhere, somehow. But if that happens, I would say that you're right that trusting is still a problem, but at a certain point, being able to, again to look yourself in the mirror after and say, hey, I, I didn't just download something and put it in there. No, I, I, I vetted these things. I did what I could do with the limited resources I have, so I'm going to go for it. And I do think it's, it should help a little bit. Maybe. I mean, that, that no, answers... Definitely. <laughs> We're dealing <laughs> I mean, absolutes here. Come on. It answers one element of this. But it, the, the, the challenge is that it doesn't really answer um, sort of functionality changes or, bug cha or bugs introduced or things like that. So you, you still need all of the other kind of automation in place to be able to do all of those other things if, um, if you know, someone introduces a, you know, works by design, but it's a breaking change in you know, underlying database schema or, you know, 
changing the way the API works or you know yeah, things like that, which wouldn't be picked up. Because you could say that as long as it's not a major version release, it should never have breaking changes. And I do say yeah, should but how in many, capitals. Yeah. <laughs> how many projects really, really in general? Uh, I mean, if I just look at Linux, if I just look at Linux, and I run a lot of CentOS at the moment, still older versions. I need to move something else due to the whole stream thing. Uh, but uh, I am fairly confident that I can run yum update and just let it do its thing as long as I stay on the CentOS version I'm at. I have in the 25 plus years I've been doing this rarely had an issue and if I had an issue it's because I was doing things like exempting updates because I knew something wasn't updated from a version before because mm -hmm. this was experimental little something that was requiring whatever and ever since they have things uh, in Linux now we can actually kind of compartmentalize uh, certain pieces of things it is actually fairly straightforward. I mean, the, the only thing I can remember in recent years was that ClamD suddenly started uh, taking so much longer to boot up that it was uh, getting to a boot loop. And I actually wrote a blog on that. Um, but that was like the only one I can remember in the last five years. So I do mm -hmm. think semantic versioning does work. But of course, these distributions and those coming from Red Hat, these guys yeah. do their due diligence. I mean, again, that's what I mean. They have a tr I trust Red Hat. They they have a mm. seal of approval that when they say it'll go ninety nine point nine percent again, you'll never yeah. have the hundred percent. But I'm kind of yeah, I'll press that button and if it breaks, cool. Now obviously backups, down uh, rollbacks, things like that should always be part of your immediate remediation thing, right? Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of this is about. Um, I guess belt and braces sort of approach, making sure that you have the right, um, you have all the right infrastructure in place, you have the right, uh, you have all of the right automation in place to be able to um, you know, remediate things if things go wrong. You have an understanding of the dependencies and where all this kind of fits together, and. Like if you understand all of those things, then it should be relatively trivial. Relatively, I mean, it, it's none of this is easy. Um, I think is is the sort of the fundamental piece here. Like, so it should be made easier, but so it's still not easy. Can you offload security responsibilities to others? I think our definitive answer is maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does come back to I think it comes back to what you were saying right at the beginning about responsibility. I think you can offload a share of the responsibility. Like you buy an enterprise you buy enterprise software from an enterprise vendor to deploy in your enterprise. It's a lot of enterprises there. Um, then you know, you should have done your due diligence and asked a bunch of questions before you went into that contractual agreement to make sure that, you know, you'd done some testing, done some digging around, evaluated the, the solution, not just for does it functionally work, but, you know, how is it updated? What are the dependencies like? And all those kinds of things. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you know, that's a point in time evaluation. 
So you're going to still need to do some sort of continuous work, but you would, uh, this to me goes back to the trust, but verify, like you, you should trust that your vendors are doing the right thing, mm -hmm. but you know, you should also occasionally, it, it behooves you to go and uh, verify that that's the case. Yeah, I would expand a little bit on that and say that you shouldn't just trust the software, but you should trust the people behind the software. Mm. And especially in open source, that's a whole community thing, right? Try to not be a vendor uh, purchaser, but try to be, I mean, we, we often talk in sales environments where we want to be partnering with our customers, but that's not just marketing brouhaha, that's actually mm. just this. We want to make sure that the part, that our customers understand that, yeah, we write bugs. Everybody writes bugs. Nobody writes no bugs. That's impossible. But we have to make sure our customers understand that if we do something, if you do an oopsie, you can trust us to make sure that we will fix it as quickly as possible and we have done everything we could do to avoid it. And that's the trust relationship I think is most important between a vendor and the, the person company is uh, purchasing something. And that's mm. basically as a pre-sales engineer, which is my job, what I spend most of my time with, making sure that mm. I can convey to our, our customers that company XYZ I'm working for is a company that isn't perfect, but mm. does as much as we possibly can to be that. And I think every good company out there, and especially in open source, again, because that community sentiment is in there, mm. That's the important thing, and that can lead qu more quickly to a sentiment of, yeah, I'll just press the button and I'll trust them. It's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Well, we've spent quite a decent chunk of time, and we're only one misconception in, so I think, as we're running a little long, that that's probably all the time we have for today. You can support this podcast by becoming a patron. Every contribution really does help. Uh, we're on YouTube. You can like, you can subscribe, you can comment, and we can reply. Ooh, do all the YouTube things. Uh, please go to www.roaringelephant.org for a link to our Patreon page. And for more information about the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter using the at Roaring Elephant tag. Send your feedback to podcast at roaringelephant.org. Until next time. My name is, there's more than one misconception, Dave. And my name is, I haven't had a backboard of security fix in a half a decade, Jan. <laughs> Not quite sure what a backboarded security fix would look like for a human. In fact, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> and we look forward to talking to you next week. Goodbye. See you then.